It's not that simple. Why not? No, that's the biggest lie I was ever told. It's not that simple. And it's a lie they tell you over and over again. What's not simple? Any bit. But it was that simple question and that insight that led Albert Einstein comes from asking a simple question. Wake up. Wake up. Wake up. <laughs> All right, what do you got? All right. All right, you simple people. You know how this podcast works. Let's keep this simple. My name is Gretchen, and our guest is Elaine Wilman from Montana. This is the second time she has been on this podcast. Well, I had her on a phone call as a personal thing before. But uh, from Ronan, Ronan, Montana. Um, but yeah, she spoke. Let me get my notes here. Uh, Bonner County, Republican women, Ponderay, Idaho. She spoke. Uh, she speaks as a for uh, Indian policy stuff like that. Uh, I won't get into her, her credentials because they announce it in the in her speech or her talks, and it's pretty interesting. It was like almost an hour, and uh, they sent it to me as a YouTube video, and I listened to it, and I kind of had my back to it, and I thought it was a really cool listen. And I said, I called her and said, Mia, what do you think about me turning into this into a podcast? And she's like, yeah, let's do it. So anyways, here we are. So what does she got? Are we on? I think let's get it started. Right on. All right, here we go. Democrats say that he can't never win. Republicans will let another liberal in. His hair is kind of funny, but he knows where he's been. Said that little Marco ain't my friend. He's got a billion dollars in his own stakes, too. Ain't too many things old Trump can't do. He looks out for people working nine to five, and a Trump boy can survive. Trump boy can't survive He knew what shape this country would be Without freedom and liberty So we got on TV, said vote for me Hey, wake up Because <laughs> this is going to be a good one it's great to see so many people here today because this is really important information that we have uh, from this speaker. Elaine Willman is the author of Going to Pieces, The Dismantling of the United States of America. The book reports on first-person visits and experience of tribal members and citizens residing on or near 17 Indian reservations during her intensive road trip across the country. Having lived in western states for over 30 years, and within two Indian reservations for more than 20 years, Ms. Willman has extensive knowledge about federal Indian policy, land use status within Indian reservations, dual jurisdiction, and constitutional conflicts that impact the rights and lives of tribal members as well as other American citizens. Ms. Willman's mother and grandmother were enrolled Cherokee members. Her spouse is of Shoshone ancestry and the direct descendant of Sacagawea. She served as a national chair of Citizens Equal Rights Alliance from 2001 to 2007 and remains an active board member. Ms. Wilman has blended her local land use and strategic planning expertise with federal Indian policy to inform and engage counties, towns, and citizens that are co-located 
within or near federal recognized Indian reservations. In March of 2016, Ms. Woolman published a reference manual for community leaders and elected officials entitled Slumbering Lumber. Sorry, Slumbering Thunder. <laughs> a primer for confronting the spread of federal Indian policy and tribalism overwhelming America. Would you please welcome Elaine Woolman. Um, first, a big thank you to Victoria Z. I don't want to name the last name Victoria, and Kathy Rose for connecting with me and inviting me here, and the Bonner County Republican Women. Um, I have a couple little housekeeping things I want, but before I even start, I want to acknowledge something that I've not done before, but Pastor triggered it. Um, when I was 33 years old, I was given two years to live with cirrhosis of liver. Um, my father was a daily falling down drunk all of my life, and I was never going to be like him, but coming through a divorce after a second Vietnam tour, I started drinking at 28, and by 33, I was terminal. My children were 13 and 11, and they would have lost. If I had died at 33, I would have been a human zero. And the thing that connected me was in my detox bed when I was captured, because I was far too far along to make a decision. I prayed, I prayed, just let me be useful. I had, I had a dual addiction of alcohol and prescription drugs. I said, if you will let me live, I will be useful. I am now over 40 years sober without relapse. Every day, every day, I am useful. And I did exactly what Pastor was mentioning. I had to leave my family environment, my friends, all my buddies. I had to go to a strange place and start my life all over in a home just exactly as Pastor described. And so I would just want to co-sign the beauty of, of a process like that because, you know, I was a valedictorian, I was a bright little kid, and all of a sudden I'm in a 90-day inpatient rehab and I don't know what hit me and I'm losing everything. And so these facilities change lives and they move forward. I just want to support that. So that's, that's my little confession. Um, couple of other things. Back in the back, we have a few of the Going to Pieces book. I call that my Thelma and Louise road trip, you know, where a couple of wacky ladies drove from Washington State to New York across 17 Indian reservations. And, it's, and the point of the book was to hear the voices that you never hear on mainstream media talking about the reality on reservations. And, and as they're telling their stories across the country, folks get at accidentally educated on federal Indian policy. I'm sure if I'd written a book on federal Indian policy, who'd read it, you know? But this is a really moving story when you listen to the people. And none of the folks in this book ask for anonymity. It's real people, real stories. And then later on, just last year, I've worked with groups across the country, and, um, and I thought, you know, some of these folks have had success stories, some of these folks need tools, and so the slumbering thunder is as as it was said, a kind of a kind of a how-to book and a good book for community-led leaders and elected officials. So, so if you can't get the book here today, there's also a little card back there on how to get them online. And I want to acknowledge my really good friend who makes a lot of things possible for me, 
Laura Lee O'Neill, where are you, Laura? I can't see that far, you know. Oh, there she is, right there. <laughs> Hi, Laura. <laughs> Laura Lee O'Neill lives in Kalispell, and I met her on our first visit out before I moved to Montana. And Laura Lee is, is my road warrior partner, and videos a lot of things, and she's just a right arm, and she has created a magnificent website that I want you Idaho, Idaho people to be aware of. It's called This West is Our West. And on the back is her contact information. On this website, we have a button or a link for every state in the West. And we encourage community groups in those states to put your requests out there, put your best practices out there, put your letters to elected officials out there. We want to network us deplorables. <laughs> we want to network all of us in the Western states so that we can grow the voice of the western states and we, we all start at our little local level here but we can get bigger and better and louder by connecting and staying in touch with each other with this website then my business card is back there and boy we've got the website card for this west is our west lastly i'm retired <laughs> but my background i've been busier retired than i've ever been uh, but my background is uh the way i earned a living was lurking, working for local governments. I was the administrator, assistant administrator for Ojai, California for 10 years. Small community up in the hills above Ventura and Santa Barbara, lovely place. And then I was community development director on the Yakima Indian Reservation in Toppenish, Washington, and that's what started me off on the research and experiences of living on the reservation. And more recently, I worked for eight years. I was, it was this Going to Pieces book that uh, caught the attention of some elected officials that, that just outside of Green Bay, Wisconsin, who were getting overrun by a very bullying tribe. And they hired, they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. And they moved back there to be their community development director and director of tribal affairs and administrator. Um, and we kicked butt. <laughs> we did. It was the first, and I think it remains the first, local government across the country where all five elected officials who had been appeasing and making agreements that the tribe was constantly breaking and buying up all the land in this beautiful community. Um, it was these five elected officials who finally, through sharing chapters of the Going to Pieces book, decided enough's enough, we're gonna start fighting back. And they brought me back there. And of course the Green Bay Press Gazette just crucified me. Hobart is, Hobart, Wisconsin, Hobart has hired that anti-Indian woman to come here and pick on the poor Oneidas. Well, the annual operating budget of Hobart was a little over four million for 33 square miles full-service municipality. Four million. The annual operating budget of the poor Oneidas was 573 million, you know, annually. And so when we started putting facts out and information out and standing up, and you could go ahead and call us any name you wanted to. We started restoring the authority of the municipality over its community, and the same thing for the county and the state. And now um, the Oneida tribe is quite respectful. They still sue them regularly, but and they lose, you know? But they're not the bullies they used to be, so it can be done. And Hobart is a model. But while I was there in Hobart, I was invited out to Montana and uh, for the water travesty going on there, they invited me out five different times. By the third trip, 
I met people like you, and I thought, Hobart's okay now. We need to move there. And besides, we, my family all came from the Northwest. And so we moved to Montana in July of 2015, dead center in the middle of the Flathead Indian Reservation, to do what I did in Hobart <laughs> in West for Western Montana. So um, that's how I got out here. I work with community groups all over the country. Um, but what I would like to do this morning is, um, I'm pretty bad at following my notes, but I want to give you a little snapshot background history of the country, and then I want to talk about where we are today, and then some ideas about what we can do, and I hope to leave time for Q&A, because I love Q&A. That's where people really engage and learn, and I do too. So as a little background, one of the things, there seems to be such a big separation between the eastern states and the western states. And, and the western states, under the Obama administration in particular, but even before, under Bush and further back under Clinton, uh, the western states have been getting consistently poached by federal government overreaching. The western states are so different from the eastern states. I thought I'd back up because we can go to the 1600s when the first folks came over, you know, the pilgrims in the 1600s, and, and we were 1789 when we got our U.S. Constitution because just a few patriots gave us our freedom, 1789. This week, the city of New Orleans is celebrating its 300th anniversary. Mm -hmm. It's 300th. But, we, but the, the people from Europe that came over were here even before then. Um, and here we are in the western states, where Idaho is 127 years old. And um, most of our western states were opened up. I want to fast forward to 1803 when Jefferson bought the Louisiana Purchase. We got all that land through, up through the Midwest. And then we had difficulties that we prevailed with the Northwest with Great Britain, and in the Southwest with Mexico. And we got the Western Territories. So one of the things that happened following 1803, moving up to 1855, this is five years before the Civil War, 1855. Um, Franklin, President Franklin Pierce sent Governor Isaac Stevens, he was the governor of the Washington Territories. Franklin Pierce sent Stevens out to, and his assignment was to gather as many tribes as you can and put them on one reasonable reservation. And those were all those Stevens Treaties of 1855. They were intended for 25 years, two generations for assimilation. So we have throughout the Northwest all these reservations and treaties, and they all have multiple tribes. Very few. Uh, the Coeur d'Alene tribe is probably an exception. It's not a Stevens Treaty tribe. But where I lived for 16 years on the Yakima Reservation, it's the 14 bands and tribes, of confederate bands and tribes of the Yakima. And all along western Washington, it's multiple tribes under a treaty on one reservation. And they were intended to be temporary. They seemed to come back to life after Indian Gaming Regulatory Act of 1988. <laughs> all of a sudden, those pieces of historical paper had new clout when the money came rolling in. Um, in 1887, following up on these temporary reservations, the Congress gave us the Dawes Act, or the Allotment Act, and opened up all these reservations. 
and every landowner, uh, every Indian Awatee received land. The day he received his allotment, he became a citizen of that state and he had to foreswear and walk away from his tribe. And with that allotment, he got a water right attached to his land. Same thing for the homesteaders that came out to Montana and Idaho. When they got their homesteaders' parcels, Congress gave them a water right attached to their patent. And that's important for what I'll talk about in a minute. Um, by 1890s, all of the reservations were opened up. The Indian Latis were citizens of their states. And these Indian reservations were just about gone. In 1924, all American Indians were made citizens just like you and me, with full rights, just like you and me, landowners, property owners, voters, just like us. Ten years later, we got this communist, John Collier, who was appointed the Commissioner of Bureau of Indian Affairs. And Collier said, oh, the Indians have lost all their land, and this assimilation isn't working, and they need their own self-governance. And Collier passed this huge Indian Reorganization Act of 1934, or Congress passed it on his behalf. The act was originally 48 pages that would have given them everything. Congress whittled it down to 16 pages, and it's fairly reasonable. And within that act, tribal governments and, and, and state, no one could touch the allotment, the allotment acts, allotment parcels, or the homesteader parcels. They were excluded from the Indian Reorganization Act or any tribal governments, governance over a non-Indian or even an Indian Alanti on his land. Um, from there, from 1934, at that time, the, the act was to involve the existing tribes in the United States in 34 that were then under federal reservation, uh, under federal, let me get my tongue going here. <laughs> that were then under federal jurisdiction and that were then existing but former reservations. There were about 65 or 70 that the Indian Reorganization Act addressed. There was nothing within the Indian Reorganization Act that said the Secretary of Interior can create more tribes. But they did. What, Congress passes an act, and we know this today. We're doing big regulatory reform. Congress passes an act, and the intent is quite clear, and then it's given to a federal agency to implement. And then the federal agencies write the policies and the implementation. And within that early process, the uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs started all these policies for recognizing new tribes. We're at a grand total of 567 federally recognized tribes in the United States. And in 2014, I found a list on the General Accounting Office website. They're, they're the bean counters and the policy counters for the Congress, General Accounting Office. And they published a list identifying 400 more tribes who've just recently re remembered that they're a tribe too. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? <laughs> oh my gosh, we're a tribe too. 400 more. Now just think in terms of the carrying capacity of a state the state who has the sovereign authority over all of its natural resources and its land ceded to that state, particularly its water ceded to that state. And then think of Washington State. Washington State has 31, What you can fit three Washingtons into Montana. Washington State has 31 tribes. And they, their land base is growing incrementally 
because the gaming money is free money. All of you and I as taxpayers continually fund and subsidize 567 tribes for their basic needs. That's housing, education, health, tribal police, tribal courts, tribal cultural resources, anything the tribal government needs for its members. You and I as taxpayers every year subsidize 567 of these tribes. You know, 29 governments do that now. 29 federal agencies. Used to be just the Bureau of Indian Affairs sent money out. Then Clinton came in with an executive order saying, we're going to have a government-to-government -government relationship with all of these tribes. So now all 29 agencies in the federal government have a desk in their office, an office of tribal affairs, all 29 federal operating budgets, USDA, Department of Education, Department of Health, EPA, they all budget funds to give out to these 567 tribes too. So think 29 federal agencies times 567 tribes for all the basic services. And those were supposed to go away when gaming came on and they could be economically self-sufficient. They've not only gone not gone away, they've expanded. And all that gaming revenue is free money. Absolutely free money. And it buys what I call the four L's, which is why I'm here in Bonner County. You don't have a reservation, but you have elected officials that have been purchased. Um, the gaming money is used to buy land and take it off your property tax base, to buy dozens and dozens per tribe of lobbyists that roam the halls of Congress saying more, more. And by legal profession, it's very hard to find an attorney, you can't find an attorney in Montana or Washington State that will defend a citizen's group or a city or county. The money is just too good on the other side. And the tribes in Washington State and Montana, and likely here too, they put cases with all the major law firms so that when somebody like Bonner County needs help and you go to a prime lawyer, he says, I can't help you, I, I have represented this tribe and I have a conflict of interest. So most of us in Montana and Washington, Idaho and Oregon at least, and other states too, we have to go find outside state council to come in and help a local municipal or county or community group. Um, they buy the legal profession. They buy the land and take it off the tax base. They buy the lobbyists. And, and, um, they buy the legislators, and this is something we're just now gaining some ground on. In the year 2000, right before the Bush-Gore election, um, the one tribe in New York, the United Tribe in New York, went to the Federal Election Commission and said, may we participate financially in elections? And the Federal Election Commission, which is a six-member appointed unelected body, answered them with, well, you're a government for purposes of subsidies and governing, but you're a person for purposes of contributing finances. So now, that was one advisory opinion for one tribe in the year 2000, right before the Bush court election. That has become the law of the land, and all 567 tribes can write checks from their general treasury, which is our taxpayer dollars, they can write checks from their general treasury or their gaming money to political parties or incumbents or candidates. That's how Washington State took out Senator Slade Gordon, put in Senator Maria Cantwell, I call the Indian princess, 
uh, and all your governors, from Governor Lowry of Washington State, all the way up to the boy Bimbo now, Governor Jay Inslee. Oh my goodness. Um, your governors and your legislators in Washington State are what I call coin-operated. They, they, they are absolutely coin-operated. And this goes for not, Idaho is really spared. Idaho is doing better than most of your northwestern states. But Montana is a lost cause. They, what happens is that candidate or incumbent takes the money and it's like a handcuff. They better do the bidding of that tribe because if they don't, they'll just run a challenger in and take them out if they take the money. So this has been a real problem combined with fraudulent election voting on Indian reservations. And I can report now that President Trump established a um, uh, presidential election fraud commission and he assigned Vice President Pence as the chair and there are nine commissioners and each commissioner has an email address and they have gone and reached out to the general public saying report to us your problems with elections. So we put out the call across the country saying here's your chance to inform Congress about fraudulent election conduct on Indian reservations. On the Crow Reservation in Montana, they uh, won a lawsuit, the ACLU won a lawsuit on behalf of the Crow that says, oh, the polling places are just too far for the Native Americans. They need them more on their reservation. So they got more, as did all the reservations in Montana and everywhere else. So now there are these additional polling precincts on Indian reservations, and the tribal councils put them on federal Indian trust land where your Secretary of State has no authority, no oversight, no enforcement, and where non-tribal people go to vote or poll watch and are turned away, and they don't lock the ballot boxes. And that's how we got Senator John Tester as our senator in Montana, and that's how most of our elected officials in Montana are put into office with god-awful voting irregularities on Indian reservations. But the good news is, Across the country, people have been saying, here's the facts, here's the information. We have raised the awareness on that, and we're hopeful that we will have, uh, you know, your, Washington, your states, counties, cities cannot write checks to political parties or candidates. Tribal governments shouldn't be able to either. So we think we're going to get that one knocked out here pretty soon, and that should take the handcuffs off of these elected officials, or at least level the playing field considerably. Um, I want to back up a little bit because my topic is called Restoring the Intentional Unsettling of the West. There has been intentional unsettling of the West. And if you look at 1855 and 1860 and right around the Civil War time, we heard that call, go west young man, go west young man. So young man loads his little wagon with whatever he's got and he goes west. And if he finds a piece of ground and he improves it, he can homestead it, and it's his. Go west, young man. So, young man not only found his piece of ground, a lot of young men came west. And then they built schools, communities, towns, roads. Go west, young man, built the west. Seattle, San Francisco, you know what I mean? Yeah, he was given nothing but good luck. <laughs> Go west, young man, good luck. And he built the west. 
1904, as the young states in the western part of the country were forming up with their statehood, they were not particularly stable. And the federal government, through um, the 1904 Secretary of the Interior, Alfred B. Fall, <laughs> Alfred B. Fall, most famous for being impeached to the Teapot Dome scandal that we learned about. <laughs> Alfred B. Fall put out a directive for all the Western states that all the new energy and electric and dams and water projects in the Western states be located on or near Indian reservations in these new states. So if you look at the map of the Western states, you think Cooley Dam, we have Kerr Dam on the on the Flathead Reservation, which that tribe now owns. Um, if you think of all the dams, Hoover, I don't care what state, where, it is on or near an Indian reservation. And that was fine then, that helped the young states and that helped irrigate the arid lands and brought power across the Western states. That was fine then. But what I'm gonna talk about in a few minutes is a horrible reminder of how we're suffering under that now. Um, um, the, the other problem the western states had is all the eastern states had their lands, their federal lands constitutionally disposed for the most part. There's significantly less federal land in your eastern states than in your western states. Here in Idaho, I think it's 63%, in Victoria, I think you were saying it's 44% in the county. In the county. Federal lands. And there's a group that formed up called the American Lands Council that has been working hard to get these federal lands disposed to the state. And of course the backlash from the tribes and the environmentalists when they oh, don't give it to the state, they'll just sell it off. Um, we've had great difficulty uh, acquiring our federal lands or getting them transferred into state management. And the end result of that we all suffered through last year with forest management. Um, so what what locked that in or stopped you know what we're finding is that Nick is the Nixon. Nixon Nixon, God bless him, he is a crook, you know. <laughs> Nixon did two things that changed the country to a point that is now being uh, you know exacerbated now. One is Nixon had no respect for state authority or sovereignty. Nixon wanted to federalize the whole country. And Nixon set up the EPA, just one of his little jobs. And he set up many other things, and he started federalizing the whole company, country. And he also set up the Federal Land Management Policy Act in 76. Federal Land, they call it FLIPMA, Federal Land Management Policy Act. That was the little you know, that was a little uh, too late, too bad for the Western States on the federal land. That's the Congress and the federal government saying, we have no intentions of disposing of those federal lands. We're going to manage them. Federal Lands Management Policy Act 76. And they've been hanging on to that for dear life and mismanaging the hell out of them. So Nixon started, and Nixon also was raised a Quaker. The Quakers were very active with Indians in the Northwest. Nixon wanted to do everything he could for Indians. And he absolutely accelerated and bloated up the Bureau of Indian Affairs 
and federal policies that started really muscling up these tribal governments, none of them were supposed to have authority over a non-tribal member or a non-tribal property. But way too many of them do now. So that's where it started growing. That's where the western states started getting cut off in the, in the 70s when the federal land would not be disposed and when Nixon was pushing hard to elevate the power of tribes. That, that started it. Clinton pursued it with his executive order that put a federal and Indian office in every federal agency. Bush, the Bushes were no help. Neither George Sr. or Jr. were no help. They just ignored what was going on. When Obama came into power, it just was, it's, it's, it was somebody put napalm on this process. Because Obama had a couple of really swell ideas that are dangerous to the United States, and that are equally dangerous to the tribal families and the people who live on or near Indian reservations. One of the things Obama thought was, you know, American enterprise, American private sector, is not going onto these reservations um, nearly enough to help. And so he decided that our national energy grid, our power and water grid, is good economic development for tribal governments. So Congress gave us the Indian Energy Policy Act in 2010. That threw billions of dollars out to tribes to go buy electric projects, dams, whatnot. Now remember, a tribal government's only duty is to its enrolled members. It has no duty to the customer base, the dam or the power project or anybody. And Obama's thinking it's a swell idea to let these tribes, we'll give them all this money, we'll let them go take this dam, that, that electric project, and they can manage that as good economic development. And what is their experience and skill level in managing? That has absolutely polka-dotted and weakened our national grid. My belief is that was on purpose. And my belief is that's a huge problem out here in the West right now. And some of the stuff we're going to talk about in a minute, like Ontario Hydro, Hydro One, and even the smelter system, it's all intertwined now. That's why, even though you don't have a reservation, you don't have a tribe, it's all in there. If that wasn't tough enough, remember A.B. Fall, 1904, all dams and projects need to be near Indian reservations, 1904. In 2012, Obama was still upset the American enterprise isn't going into and doing business on the reservations. Well, they had. They had many, many times. But if a company contracts to build a facility for the tribe and, and signs a contract to do that and builds it and then doesn't get paid, they can't sue. They can't recover. There's tribal sovereign immunity. So yes, many, many American businesses have had their fingers burned and they're just really hesitant to go on reservations. So Obama's next trick is 2012. He says, guess what? The American businesses aren't moving on these reservations to help. And he says, I'm of the mind that the Native Americans of America have a lot in common with the cultures of the Middle East. And, uh, and so we, we got the HEARTH Act, H-E-A-R-T-H, the HEARTH Act of 2012, which is a big money appropriation bill out to tribes, the 567. But tucked within it is the ability of a tribal government, let's use the Coeur d'Alene 
they're busy. And I certainly use the flathead, they've been busy already with this stuff. Um, a tribal government may now long-term lease that federal Indian trust land that's not on the tax rolls, that federal Indian trust land where states and county sheriffs and local law enforcement have no cider authority. They can long-term lease these Indian trust lands for up to 75 years with no prior BIA oversight or approval. They can just do it. So, now we're bringing in Turkey and Saudi Arabia into these little 340 reservations pocketed across the country. There'll be a nice blend for the 270 sanctuary cities across the country. We're getting polka dotted. We're getting polka dotted with infiltration. And what transpired on the, under the Obama administration is just now coming to surface. And we're just now starting to raise hell. And it will be reversed, but it's going to take all of us supporting the current administration when, he, when they rise up on this. I don't want to... Yeah, exactly. I don't want President Trump. The whole world hates him. And I don't want him to raise it up right now. So what a bunch of us are doing across the country, and I encourage you to do the same wherever you can. We're informing his team. We're informing his, his uh, secretaries, his cabinet members. We're informing his staff. The Trump transition team reached out before he became, before January 20th. I'm affiliated with a land use planning firm in Kansas that's, that, whose uh, clients are county commissioners. And that team was contacted by the Trump team saying, give us a matrix, give us a list of low-hanging fruit, really bad regulations we can immediately repeal. And so I was assigned the federal Indian policy and EPA piece of that. So I just had a field day. And I put in that federal elections. <laughs> I put in that federal elections commission thing. They shouldn't be able to, you know, money up our elections either. So I put all that in. And by this time, he's in office, and his team contacted again and said, give us some more. They truly are doing serious regulatory reform at EPA, at the Department of Interior. They really are. And so there's, you know, we, some of this will get reversed. But I don't want him making a big national noise about it right now. He's got enough people screaming at him. He doesn't need 567 drives yet. You know what I mean? So, so that's my take on that. Um, I kind of need to get to where we are today. But, but I just wanted to paint that picture of who really built this West, most of your descendants. Who's really taken down this West, the federal government overreaching, um, and where it's going now with these, this integration of Indian tribes into energy, and Indian tribes integrating with Muslims. Oh, one more point. I did a talk show on a show I'd never heard of. It was called Caravan to Midnight. It's one of those late night things. Um, and I didn't realize how far and wide it went. But after that talk show, and I talked just about on that, like I did here, like I'm doing here, um, I got an email from somebody in Canada. said, please call me. So I thought, okay, I'd talk to anybody. And when I called, a woman answered the phone and started crying. And she says, I'm an Algonquin woman from Quebec. And she says, I've never heard anybody even mention the Muslims coming onto reservations in North America. She says, I'm so happy you did it. She was just sobbing. 
Um, she has now become quite a colleague of mine, and I've hooked her up with some very strategic legal counsel in New York, too. But she tells me that along the Canadian border, which Idaho is, Montana, Washington, most of the Indian reserves, they're called reserves there, not reservations, they're all along the Canadian border. And she said in Canada, it is Iran and Pakistan that have already infiltrated the reserves along the Canadian border, and there are mosques, and there's a lot of conversion to Sharia going on on the Canadian reserves right across that border. Apparently, the Middle East has divided up the North American continent to where Iran and Pakistan get Canada, and Saudi Arabia and Turkey get the United States, and they're sprinkling them in through these tribal policies that need no prior approval. It's quite frightening when you think that these are the same locations near our power, near our dams and treasure. Quite frightening. It's a national security threat. And, and we need to really, hopefully that is being looked at. Um, and I'm just gonna keep screaming about it until we get it fixed. Um, what's going on here in Bonner County today is, is, uh, it's a collaboration, it's a big collusion of several big things moving on, this, on a parallel path. You have, and thank God for the new CANS group and the folks that are fighting the silicon smelter project. That's just a small piece, but that's a very important piece. And it has to be confronted. And that's where Washington State is wrong to ignore the impacts on Idaho. I want, by any chance, is Norm Simanko here, the attorney? Your attorney? Oh, you've got the most amazing attorney that he's, he's spoken to our Yes. He is you know, you Idaho is so fortunate to have that man. And I think he can help. Um what was the, the name again please? Norm Semanko, Thank you. He's been a huge help to the folks constantly struggling with the bully Cordelaine tribe. And Norm's been a wonderful legal counsel. And here's the other problem. I've worked on this issue for twenty five, thirty years. I can count on both hands the number of legal counsel across the country that will even try to help because the money's too big on the Indian side. So Norm is just a crown jewel of legal counsels in the Northwest. Can't say enough about him. But that's one piece. You have this uh, CRSO, this Columbia River Systems Operation Environmental Impact Study going. And that is preparatory to another piece coming online, which is a renegotiation of the Columbia River Treaty between the United States and Canada. Five or six years ago, the Columbia River Treaty tribes, 53 of them, uh, organized five or six years ago, and they are all ready to confront the United States and Canada with the requirement that these two countries fulfill their moral obligation to give the Columbia River waters back to the indigenous people. You know? There it started five or six years ago and they haven't even started negotiating the treaty. But here's how powerful they can be. And here's another way the federal government has overreached in the western states. We have major river systems. We have the Missouri River, Mississippi River, Columbia River. And all of these river systems have been explored by the Army Corps of Engineers. And they have a bounded area of every little raindrop and trickle that comes into that river becomes the Missouri River watershed. 
or the Columbia River watershed. Let's look at the Missouri River. And then they set up a federal board to guide the policies of this federal watershed. Um, so it, the Missouri River goes through nine states. So there's one seat at the table for each of the nine states on the Missouri River Watershed Board. There are 27 tribes. So there's one seat at the table for 27 tribes and the nine sets on the Missouri. Now the Columbia River, which has its start in Canada, affects four states, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and Montana. There are four seats on the Columbia River Watershed Board. There are 53 seats on the Columbia River Watershed Board. And these boards have changed their policies from their origins, which was agriculture and economic development, to now preservation of cultural resources and habitat. And somewhere down the food chain, there might be a little left over for irrigators and ag. They've switched those policies. And they, they're lopsided seating. And th this is how this spread of tribalism and I should mention, in our U.S. Constitution, there are three sovereignties. First, and they're in order, mine and yours, we the people, that's first. The second are the state authorities and state sovereignties. That's second, because there was no federal government. It's the states that created the third sovereignty, the federal government, with limited enumerated power. There isn't a single word in the U.S. Constitution there's no text, there is nothing even close where the framers of our country, of that constitution, contemplated the existence of tribal governments ever. Ever. This entire federal Indian policy system is completely unconstitutional. And it wasn't a problem for many years until 34 when Collier started making it a problem. And then 88, gaming came on. And that money started buying your decision makers in Congress and in your state capitals. And it's a problem now, big problem. The good news is the Supreme Court has been trying to rein it in and has done so quite well. And uh, the problem during the Obama administration is we get really good rulings that, that strengthen state authority, that strengthened citizen authority, you know, and the Obama administration would just thumb themselves at all of that. Well, we're not dumbing our nose at those rulings now. We have Gorsuch on the court now. And I think that we've got, I've never been so optimistic as I am since uh, November the 8th, when all of us flyover people, deplorables, stood up and got to the polls. And we stood up and got to the polls. I can tell you, had, had the other candidate come in, I don't like to put her word in my head. <laughs> but had the other candidate got in, we would have lost this country. I have a little two-year-old great-grandson, and I don't believe he would. I don't believe he would live in the United States when he's 21, if we had not righted the ship. Start. But the problem is we can't rest. And I can see by this room that nobody's resting. We got him in. But we have to stay networked, talking, noisy, push back on every local elected official, state and federal elected official. We have to support this writing of our ship hard and continuously. It's like we just need to enlist to bring this country back.
under the Constitution. And, and it's growing, it, you know. And look at the force we can be. We kind of cleaned the clock in the NFL, didn't we? You know? <laughs> a few of us got a little upset. And we're a force there, you know. We're a force in many, many ways, but we don't understand, you know, we don't maybe see each other every day, we don't really realize, but we're a force. You know, there's still one person makes a difference, especially when you've got a whole ton of one persons that are not listening to mainstream media. The reason I love to come out and talk to people is because my, I listen to Fox News all the time, mainstream media, and it's so depressing and discouraging. But then when I go and speak here or there, it doesn't matter what state, the rooms full of people are the finest fellow Americans I've ever met. It's so uplifting to know that you folks are out here, that you're into it, that you're on it, and, uh, and that's going on everywhere. But it's not getting on NBC, you know? <laughs> but who cares, you know what I mean? But we're there, we're there. And th that's the positive message we have. Couple other pieces. The um, Vista, Hydro One is acquiring a Vista. Little background on that so that you know what to look for. One of the things that's happening is that decision making is being eliminated at the local city, county level. It's moving up to regional levels. It's moving up to state levels. With a Hydro One and a Vista, it's moving beyond state levels. It's moving beyond. Hydro One is a big corporation that's only two years old. Only two years old. And they have a customer base of four states, about a million people, and they're going to come in and make everything right. It was spawned from Ontario Hydro in Canada, which is one of the biggest power companies in the world. And Ontario Hydro's CEO was a chap named Maurice Strong. And so I'm looking into, who's this Maurice Strong? Maurice Strong, I, I wikipedia it. <laughs> Maurice Strong was the CEO of Ontario Hydro, which was into coal and oil, big fossil fuels, biggest, one, of, one of the biggest uh, corporations in the world for energy. Simultaneously with his chairing an environmental um, commission and program at the United Nations, um, Maurice Strong is called the father of global warming. Maurice Strong was the mentor who planted the seed in Al Gore's pea brain. You know? <laughs> Maurice Strong was his mentor. Maurice Strong, now mind you, this guy is a little maculalian, a little skitsy. He's making big money off of fossil fuel simultaneously with saying, oh, we gotta go green, there's climate change, we're all gonna die. You know what I mean? And pumping it up. Now, to distance themselves from Maurice Strong in Ontario, Canada, they formed Hydro One. It's like, oh, there's nothing to see here. We're, we're clean, we're new. Well, you can believe those philosophies are continuing. And the other thing is, this acquisition of this Vista is, again, between two countries who aren't particularly interested in being accountable to four separate utility commissions in the states. And so the further up they can get these decisions and the further up they can say, don't worry, it's a done deal. Nothing you can do about it. Done deal. When you hear done deal, you say, oh yeah? <laughs> you know? That's what they did with the casinos in California. 
They went into all these little communities right after gaming, and they said, oh, it's a done deal. They hired a gal who would go in and say, oh, the, the, the casino's coming to your community. Nothing you can do it, but I'll help you mitigate. We'll get some money for your roads and for your law enforcement. And they opened up 100 casinos behind a done deal. Saying, oh, it's a done deal. There's nothing you can do, but we'll get you some money. They filled a few funds for a year or two, and over 100 casinos went up. When you hear done deal, you hear the big red flag. Because there is no law that's a done deal. Every law can be changed. There's no project that can be... I mean, there's a way to confront it through the public process when they allow you one. So far, Avissa and Hydro One are specious. So far, the uh, smelter, silicone smelter project, they're doing everything they can to minimize public input, but I hear you've got a meeting coming up. You demand public insert your voices in there, and encourage your elected officials to do the same, um, because there's no done deals. Now, it, it's hard, because if you look at a million customer base, and maybe a couple of hundred people say, it's wrong, we don't want it. Things, oh, well, we have a consensus of the silent. It'll be all right. You know, and you have states whose governors and legislators are coin-operated, and it's very hard to get the states to even stick up for themselves. And so it is as people that have to be noisy. And the more that we are noisy, the better we're getting. The better we're getting. So these are those things that are moving over northern Idaho right now. Um, the silicone, the hydro and Abyssa, the Columbia River system, the Columbia River Treaty negotiations, they're all coming up right now. I mean, right now and in the next few years. So how does a handful of people handle all this? So that brings me to the part where I want to talk about a workshop I went to Saturday. Laura Lee and I went out to, down to Hamilton, Montana. And we listened to a marvelous property rights attorney, uh, nationally recognized, Karen Bud Fallon. Karen Bud Fallon has been one that has sued EPA, the BLM, Fish and Wildlife. She's sued all the federal agencies uh, to assist the property owners and ranchers and cattle grazers on public land. And she's known in the Midwest far than she is known in the Northwest. But Karen Bud Fallon has also been selected by President Trump to be the new director of the Bureau of Land Management. <laughs> and that, that's kind of like hiring Scott Pruitt for EPA. <laughs> it's almost that good, you know? <laughs> and uh, the Missoula people had a fit when Karen Bud Fallon was there. Missoula was quite extensively liberal. She came anyway, which, and so Laura and I went on. Actually, Laura and I met her in Dodge City, Kansas. I was on the speaker program with her in Dodge City, Kansas in March. And all of the speakers going to the Dodge City, Kansas conference got stranded in the Denver airport because they canceled the one plane a day going into Dodge City. So we had the joy of driving six hours with Karen up to Dodge City so they could still have a conference. This woman is amazing, and she is a believer in local decision-making. And her workshop was about county commissions and counties having some reasonable and very specific land use planner policy. She says it doesn't matter what you name it. If you want to call it a comprehensive plan, you want to call it a something policy, fine. But it needs to be specific and it needs to identify what she calls your customs and cultures. For example, this county is between what, the Cabinet Mountains and 
Selkirk. 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 Yeah. Here in So the county and the citizens can do this. These land use policies can be uh, made cheaply. You don't have to hire some consultant out of she's in Pennsylvania who knows nothing about your area to come in and write a plan. You need your people, a citizens group, to sit down and ask, who is the first ones out here? Why do they come and what do they do? And who are the next ones out here? Why do they come and what do they do? What is our culture here at Bonner County? What do we really hold dear? And you get those specific things. Maybe it's fly fishing. Maybe it's the recreation on the waters. Maybe it's some community annual events that are really big. But you get those things that identify your culture and your customs in Bonner County identified in the, in the, in the land use plan, in the local land use plan. And citizens are really good resources for that because they can do the research, they can really help out and it doesn't cost a bunch. Then she says, now your plan will have no veto power over any federal decisions. But as your plan exists and has that specificity in it, your federal agencies in the national forests or you know, your federal projects that are going on around Bonner County will have to take notice and strive for consistency within your plan. If you're a county without any plan, they can do whatever they want. You're pretty much toast. So she really promotes local land use planning. Not, and not, not, not specific, just generic, but specific enough to identify who you are as a people here and what's important to your economy here and what's important to your liberty and your, your sustainability. You know, you, Oh, I don't want to use the word sustainability. That's an yes. <laughs> I, won't, I haven't got time to get into the Agenda 2030. But it is all of Agenda 2030 is written into federal Indian policy. And all of the tribes uh, are trying to seek separate sovereign status with the United Nations. And Obama signed this. Obama signed a United Nations, it's called UNDRIP. That's the acronym, UNDRIP. United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, UNDRIP. <laughs> Obama signed it. And within the very first text of that United Nations resolution that he signed is that all of the lands, the ancestral lands of the indigenous people be returned to the indigenous people. Well, I think that's all in North America. <laughs> Obama signed that. Now, fortunately, it has no force in effect, and Congress has just ignored it. The United Nations is just useless. But nonetheless, that's where Obama's been trying to go. And he gained a lot of ground over the last eight years that we're going to be hard-pressed to correct, but I believe we will. Um, and so it's all tied in. Even though you don't have a tribe here, you don't have a reservation here, it's tied into all the federal problem. Here's another thing. H.R. House Res H.R. 2936, House Bill 2936. Look that up. It's a fairly good bill. And, and it comes in following the horrific fires we had here throughout the Northwest and even down in Northern California. H.R. 2936 is the uh, Forestry, oh, Resilient Forestry Preservation Act. I can't think of the exact name of the act. But it has the word resilience in it. Forestry Resilience Management Act or something like that. H.R. 2.9. Fundamentally a very good bill and a very good idea. But in the middle of it is Section 7. 
which says, if ancestors walked in those forests, tribal governments may manage them. Oh, no. Yeah. And so we need everybody and their brother and sister to get in, go online to house.gov, word search 2936, uh, find your local congressman, anybody you can, and that section has to be pulled out. And the reason is, number one, tribal government's only duty is to their enrolled members. Managing your forest, they have no duty to the users of the forest. Managing your forest, they can determine special preferences. Oh, your tribal members can come in free, but the rest of you, you can do this. They can determine the uses, the multiple uses or no uses. And if something happens, if there's an injury to someone, you can't sue them. There's no redress. And just like energy, just like melding with the Middle East, the Obama administration is pushing tribes into our national forests. And I might also mention that Hydro One, in Ontario, Canada, was extremely involved with the Canadian tribes up there. And though those tribes down here will probably be at the table underneath there as subcontractors or whatnot. You need to watch for that with Hydro One. But, and this is a system that is taking down our representative government. That's why I say confronting the spread of federal Indian policy and tribalism overwhelming America. And, and that's why I said 12 years ago, in 2005, is that the right math? I think so. Uh, the dismantling of the United States of America. I thought I was a little exaggerating in 2005, the dismantling of the United States of America. But everything in this book, this book is selling as big right now as it ever did, because everything that folks were worried about is exactly in our face and worse right now. So this is where I felt the need to update things and provide some kind of help for local community leaders. So I think, where's my lady watching my time? about five minutes. Oh my goodness, I'm doing good. <laughs> what can we do? I really want to get the question answered. Um, what can we do? I call it the three E's. We educate ourselves. We educate ourselves. Books like these, there's other ones. There's a wonderful book called Wampum by a wonderful attorney I know up in Canada, and he's just an expert on Indian gaming, and he exposes all the corruption. And he also exposes the fraud of setting up the uh, Indian, Indian, Indian Reorganization Act, the, the, the communism that went in in 1934. He exposes that beautifully. It's called Wampum. There's lots of books online to do that with. Um, I didn't bring any material, I, and I need, oh, I forgot to put in my disclaimers. I don't speak for any organization, I just speak for me. And I'm also not an attorney, but I went, I attended Ventura College of Law for two years, just enough to be dangerous, you know? <laughs> and, and I have a, an affection for law, and I have affection for really, really good attorneys, and I just want to shoot these jerk attorneys that'll take your money and you run. I, 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 I believe in our rule of law. I believe in our country. And I believe in the few people making a difference. And I, and I always have. Um, but the, the three E's would be educate ourselves. And by that, not just me picking up a book and educating me. 
it's me and turning to my spouse or my kids saying, you know this, you gotta read this. Or the, or the aunts and uncles, or our community groups. You know, we need to spread that education. We need to talk out loud and pull the muzzle off. For so many years, nobody would speak up because we don't want to be called a racist. Don't want to be called Islamophobic. Don't want to be called this, that, and the other thing. And you know, November 8th, the muzzle came off. By golly, you could call me any name. And I am called. I'm on the Southern Poverty Law Center's hate list. <laughs> you know, if, you're, if you're a Christian, or you're a conservative, or you're a patriot, or any of those combinations, you're on this hate list, the Southern Poverty Law Center. There was a time when they were a legitimate entity, but they are part of the Soros and all that other stuff. And so I wear it as a badge of honor. They put me on the hate list several years ago. And some of the organizations that I support are on there too, so we're doing good. Um, educate ourselves and engage with each other and everyone around us. And, and uh, be willing. <laughs> Just, my son, uh, my son is uh, a boat builder, fabricator down in Ventura, California. I'll never get him off the beach. Um, and he didn't. He was raised by me till he was 18, and he's on his own. And he's been infected with some of that California thinking. And he's doing a podcast. And he was a wonderful kid. They were a bunch of surfers. And he did a podcast with one of his buddies that I knew when they were both boys. And they're talking. And he says, Mom, why don't you listen to this podcast? I'm listening. I'm getting increasingly uncomfortable. You know, and there's, there's one fine kid. He's saying, he's doing the Rodney King number. Why can't we all get along? We should just have one world order. We should just be one race and one number. Why can't we all get... And I'm sitting there listening, thinking, I gotta talk to this kid. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then I, I went to sleep, troubled by it. And then I realized, I'm no math whiz. Well, let's think about the math here about One World Order. I think there's about 330 million American citizens in the United States. I think we're the poster child for liberty and freedom and a representative government in the world. And there's 336 million of us. But there's almost 8 million other folks on the planet Earth. And those other folks are predominantly Muslim or communist. We're just a little bit outnumbered. And we're being infiltrated. And this one world order thing can really take out 330 million US citizens who believe in liberty. You know what I'm saying? That's why we're, we're sort of like America's version of Israel. They're a little outnumbered too. <laughs> we have to take care of ourselves. We have to preserve this representative republic form of government and this democracy or we're outnumbered and we're gone. It, it's a vigilant job. Yeah, yeah. I want to mention that. And then the other thing is get very straight with your elected officials and scrutinize their background. And one of the questions they ask is, have you received any money at all from any tribe anywhere? And if the answer is yes, say, what do you plan to do about it? Will you get, be willing to give it back? Because it's a handcuff. If they get in office, which they can because of the money, They'll be pulled out of office if they don't do everything the tribe tells them. Mm -hmm. so, it, so you need to ask the question. I don't care if it's a mayor, city council member, county commissioner, state legislator, governor, senator. Have you taken any money from a tribal government? Yes or no? 
you know. And and it's going to be tough to get a straight answer because the tribes don't have to report these little sacks of cash, you know. And and if they come in the form of a sack of cash, easy does the candidate. So this is a very serious flaw in our election system. So those are the three D's: educate, engage with each other, go after your elected officials, and put the right people. And in my mind, the right person is somebody who lives and dies by the U.S. Constitution, somebody who has just a, in their blood a love of America, you know, and someone who does not think in terms of harming or taking from others, nor supporting those who refuse to work themselves. You know, we're about individual responsibility. That's what our Constitution was formed for. And so we need to phase out this whole entitlement process that almost gave us that candidate whose word I won't put in my mouth. We need to get people back to work, back to believing in the country, and back to taking care of their zip code, their local community and watching for infiltrators and confronting them. You know, it's okay to confront them. It's okay. If you get called a name, say, oh, thank you very much. I assume you're an idiot that doesn't have an argument. You know what I mean? <laughs> Call me another name. You know what I mean? We mustn't be afraid of that. And it's okay for us to talk to each other. It's okay for us to disagree with each other. But by God, maybe it's just my age and sage, um, I'm not going to be muzzled. You know, we get some honorary grandparents and whatnot. I will not be muzzled. None of us should be. All right, well, that was good. Yeah, good job, Elaine. You go, girl. You gave us a lot of information. I, I trip out on how good her memory with names and dates and all that stuff. It's just, like, crazy how she can remember all that shit. She's a special person. Yeah, true. She is your mother. She is my mom. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's it, this is kind of dedicated to her. Um, I love the shit out of my mom. Um, I respect her, and it's you know, she, even when she became sober when like, I was twelve or uh, my life, she was still crazy. She still did her own thing, and I, how I ended up with my life was basically how she raised me. Or didn't raise me, basically. Uh, anyways, what do we got? Well, I just want to thank everyone for listening tonight. And um, if you want to contact us, remember we're at simplequestions at AOL.com. Simple questions, remember that's with two S's at the end at AOL.com. And we're on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And I figured you guys could listen to this, you know, instead of listening to this on your computer looking at a YouTube video you can you can download this to your device device I think they call it device because it's like a vice device as a vice they're staring at it you can listen to it too people so you can like download it to your phone and listen to it while you're in your tree stand or your chores or you're painting your house or on your treadmill or doing your nails (laughs) 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 all right you guys peace out all right man thanks guys